so if we haven't met, my name's Tony. I have the, the joy of being able to be a pastor here. And uh, as Aaron said, this is our anniversary service. And, you know, I, I had a lot of, uh, I'm having a fair amount of emotion, actually, thinking back um, of what God has done in this space um, through the beginnings of a church plant, through a global pandemic, uh, to today. Uh, One of the things, you know, if you read the Old Testament, you'll often see this repeated pattern of, hey, why don't you guys look back and remember? Because often it's as we look back and remember that we're able to go forward faithfully. You kind of have to look back to ground yourself in God's goodness as you move forward. Um, I'm reminded of a text in Deuteronomy, This is what it reads. This is Deuteronomy 24, 8. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Hey guys, look back at the ways that you were oppressed, the ways that you were trapped, the ways that you were stuck. Ways that you couldn't get out yourself. And now look what I did, says God. Remember that, because that's going to inform how you move forward in the future. So this morning, I just want to look back at the ways God has been faithful to us. Um, And not just us. See, this story doesn't just start five years ago when my family showed up. In fact, it starts about a hundred and something years ago, 131, 32. In the summer of 18, or the fall of 1891, this church was founded, but actually it started before that. You might not know this. It's actually four women in Pacific Grove in the 1880s gathered to pray. They wanted to see a work of God in this place. And these four women gathered and people saw their faith. And people started to go to these women and eventually, right, this church formed. And any church that's been around for 130 years is going to have ups and downs. This morning, I was reminded of that. I was, these are huge doors. And the second one got a little stuck. And so I gave it a little shove. And like, I got showered in something. I don't know what. (laughs) So if you see like all these like seemingly like pieces, I don't know, Alicia and Jake were right behind me. I was like, did you see all the, those aren't freckles or moles. That's stuff. (laughs) Um, But you get, just get covered in stuff over time. You know, this church has gone through many, ups and downs, and it was actually by the summer of 2017, this church was in kind of a precarious place, and they were wondering, you know, what's going to become of it? Now, rather than me tell that story, I want to invite uh, Paul E. Davis up. You give him a round of applause. Um, You got this guy? That one work? There you go. Um, so, Paul, just, just to refresh people, because uh, not everyone knows you, um, Paul's been around here for a while. How long has it been? Six years. Six so got, years. About, yeah, let me see. Let me see if that's on. Yeah, you're good. Just. Uh, 60 years ago yeah. we came here, I guess. So, I mean, how many of us have done 60 years doing anything? <laughs> Paul and his family have been worshiping in this place serving faithfully for 60 
years. So just before I got here, um, I know there's a little bit of a story. Like, I remember you telling me at some point, you and your son were, I think, grabbing breakfast, and you're like, I wonder if we're going to be able to keep the doors open. And then out of nowhere, this, the Spirit of God nudged a local pastor at Carmel Prez, Rick Duncan, to reach out to you. you didn't, they didn't know what was happening. And Rick Duncan gives you a call and says, hey, can I help? Not knowing the situation. Can you just kind of tease that out a little bit? Sure. Uh, leading up to that, uh, we had gone through a mission study. We were ready to look for a new pastor. Yep. And uh, we knew that we wanted a young pastor that could live in Pacific Grove. <laughs> I'm <laughs> a, not that young anymore. A, I know. a, a creative pastor. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that could help uh, build a church around young families. Hmm. But we were at a, we were at uh, a point where we had no money. We didn't know where to look or what to do. And that's when the call came from Rick Duncan. <clears throat> and he said, I, I can help you. First of all, I know that you need a search person that can do the search for you to help bring candidates for you to look at and decide that, that, will, that will fit uh, this situation. Secondly, you'll need extra money beyond what you can afford to pay right now for a young pastor to be able to afford to live in Pacific Grove plus support staff. He said, I will work uh, with our church and other churches to raise two to three years of extra money that's necessary beyond what your budget is now to be able to do that. So this is a church, a local church that could be the competition Carmel. saying, you know what? We care more about God's kingdom here. And we're going to fundraise for you to create an outpost of God's peace and presence in Pacific Grove. Yeah. Yes. Uh, when, we, when I announced that to the congregation or our, or our committee or that we're working together, it was a great time of joy and mm. just expectation. God is with us. Yeah. It was, it was really the, the first miracle. Hmm. And uh, so we, uh, and a couple of weeks later, he calls and he says, Paul, I just met this new, this man in our church who's retired here, who was with a church uh, Anglican, Anglican Church in America, part of planting 500 churches, and has the contacts and is willing to, at no expense, help you in the search. Okay. And so we had a meeting a couple weeks later. Jim McClanahan and I met with Rick Duncan and Mike Murphy uh, and to discuss how we would proceed. Okay, so we have someone out of the blue saying, hey, I'll fundraise for you. Now you have someone out of the blue saying, hey, we have a church planter who can actually lead a process to find someone who could maybe do the plant. And what have you seen over the last five years? Well, what, what, what that also brought was... Okay, more, sorry. Yeah. What that more. also brought, uh, Rick Duncan was very um, creative in terms of, okay, how are we going to proceed and not let us get into the same... Hmm problem with our stuff yeah. that we tend to we get had some into stuff. up and down. We had some stuff that had fallen on <laughs> yes, us over time. Yes, that's right. Got it. So he suggested a memorandum of understanding be developed for a five-year experiment okay. of how we would operate, understanding that, first of all, this is not our church. It's God's mm. church. And secondly, Christ is the head of the church, and he works through the pastor, 
and then through the elders for the administration of the church and how to develop a culture around that. And a creative new pastor could lead us as we, in a sense, start over and say, we are going to start over. We are going to replant. Yep. And it was with that framework that then the congregation agreed to that and said, yes, let's do it. Yeah, yeah just to tease it out. So the elders were standing up there on that upper part of the balcony, and the church was down here, and they had a call and response saying essentially two things. One, that every person in this church no matter whether they were the biggest donor or the smallest, whether they had served here 50 years or five years, they would all set aside their preferences to see God's work take flourish in this place. And two, they weren't going to sit around gossiping in the parking lot, undermining if someone didn't do what they wanted, they would leave peacefully and say, all right, God's doing something. It's different than what I want. Bless it. Call and response, set aside their preferences and they wouldn't sit around gossiping and undermining, okay? We'll get into this story <laughs> as we go, but I just want maybe just one last thing of like, let's say that's the starting place. Yes. How have you seen God work over the last five years? Well, uh, as Tony said, I've been here six, we've been here 60 years, five pastors before Tony, Yeah. ups and downs, there's always been a taste of what God could do and would want to do mm. when this place was full before, with small groups. And then we seem to somehow stumble over differences. Mm. And just to see us create a framework where we would avoid that and we would center on what God has for us and find a creative young pastor who could lead us and we would commit to follow the direction of him and the, and the elders and the staff and create a framework where we would have this new culture hmm. that we would center on Christ and our following of him. And it's been probably one of the most exciting adventures that I've been involved in in five years. And I think it's working. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Thanks so much. So one of the things that um, Paul and the folks here, they were told an analogy before I got here. And I've shared this so many times, and I will keep sharing it so many times. Uh, well, maybe just to say this real quick. So who here has joined this or come here in the last, like, since last summer? Raise your hand. Yeah, so half. You know, who here, who's started coming here in the last, since 2022? A third, right? A lot of people. So maybe you haven't heard it. Good. So, I re one of the problems with being a senior pastor is that you have a limited amount of stories, so you sort of retell them. Uh, so it's nice to have some new folks that can hear it for the first time. Uh, the bulldozer analogy. So before I got here, there was a group of people that had been here 10, 20, 30, 50 years these people, they're invested in this place. And they were told this analogy before the church plant happened to sort of count the cost. They were told that the church is a field and God is in a bulldozer in one corner and they are in the other corner and they have the keys. And God is reaching out his hands and saying, hey guys, 
would you be willing to give me the keys to the bulldozer so I can do what I want with the field? Have you ever just been asked by God to do something that felt like, well, that's letting go of a lot of control? Right, Paul says, yeah, bring in a young, creative person, but really, this is about letting go of control, allowing God to be God in this place, and this group of unbelievable, faithful, inspiring people said, you know what? It's not our church. All right, God, here we go. And I want us to just hold that in our brains, because I think that is like maybe the deepest foundation of what we want the culture of this church to be, right? that all of us are given the opportunity on a regular basis to let go and allow God to have the bulldozer, not just to this church, but to our lives. Now, Paul shared a little bit. Um, as I sort of entered the picture, as our family entered the picture, right, Jeannie and I and Josiah and Claire were living up in Washington at the time, I was in a doctoral program. My mentor happened to have a connection with Mike Murphy, so we got looped in to this process. And Jeannie and I, you know, we were really connected at this church up there in Washington, and we wanted to discern. So we invited a bunch of friends over. We had them at our house a few different times and said, let's pray together. And there was a verse that kept coming up. It was this in these prayer gatherings, Isaiah 43, 17. I am about to do a new thing, says God. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And as we were praying with our friends up in Washington, two things stood out. One, clearly, even though Paul was trying to hire a young creative pastor, in the end, this was going to be God's work from beginning to end, not genies, not mine, not yours, but God was going to do a new thing. And two, this new thing was going to lead to direction, right? Away in the wilderness. And it was going to lead to life, water in the desert. And it's crazy as I look back over these five years, like, Imagine the vulnerability for Jeannie and I, right? We're like upending our whole life to come down here to try this church plant and see what is going to happen, you know? Six months and is it just going to go down in glorious flames? Or is it going to endure? That's crazy actually, looking back, just seeing the faithfulness of God to that initial promise. It's just so beautiful. In fact, two things stand out. One, over this last few years, God has provided. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to tell stories about how God has provided. And then two, I'm going to emphasize how God has transformed us also in the process. He's provided and He has transformed. Provided. Now, if you came in, just sort of, sorry, this is a little off topic, but if you came in hoping to hear an exegetical sermon, you're not going to get one today. Generally, on a Sunday morning, we're going to be in the scriptures. Today, I'm going to tell stories because I think these stories ground us in who God has formed us to be and where we're going. Okay? So, sorry about that. Okay. Provided. The truth is God started providing even before we arrived on the ground here. 
right? He provided in the people that were here their openness of heart. And you, you get to see me on the stage, but the truth is God brought Jeannie and I to this place, and Jeannie is like a Jedi master with kids. So from day one, right, we showed up. Jeannie had her like, you know, I think we had like, I don't know, two to four children in the church at that time. And she took that little group, made a little, you know, room for them, and it grew and grew. And by the time Jeannie transitioned out for the kids' role, right, I think we had gone to like four or five classrooms. It was just this explosion that Jeannie, God prepared our church by bringing her to love the kids. And many of the middle schoolers, some of the high schoolers in this room, were with Jeannie five years ago. So you had someone who could stand up here and talk. You had someone who could be with the kids. But what were we going to do with worship? So one Sunday, we did these kind of discernment weekends, and we're like, you know, we're going to come down here. We're going to give the group here some sense of like what we're going to try and do, right? Because you don't want to do a bait and switch thing where you're like, no, we're going to do it your way. And then like day one, you're like, no, we're going this way. So I wanted them to know like, hey, this is where we're going. So I was going to have a buddy of mine come from San Jose to lead worship that Sunday. I was excited. They're going to get a sense of like, this is where we're going. My buddy, he's in San Jose. He decides to do a mountain biking trip on Thursday. We're already in PG. He goes mountain biking in Santa Cruz Mountains. He's just rocking it down a downhill. A bee flies into his mouth. He flips over the handlebars, lands on the ground, calls me from the ER saying, I have a concussion. I'm not going to be able to lead worship on Sunday. You feel bad for him, but I had a panic attack. <laughs> what am I going to do? Like, put on a CD? I mean, it was just going to be embarrassing. <laughs> An hour later, I get a call from this couple, John and Amy, and I'm, they're like, hey, you know, we heard you might need a worship leader. I'm like, who are you? Are you free Sunday? They said yes. They came and led worship that Sunday. When they were done, I said, hey, could you stick around for a few months? They're like, sure. And John and Amy Eldridge ended up leading worship here for two years. Before we even arrived on the ground, God used a bee to bring John and Amy here. That same weekend, I had a couple of friends that I had met up in Washington, but I hadn't seen them for a few years. And I was like, sent them a text. You know, it's one of those like Hail Mary kind of texts. You're like, this is not going to go anywhere. Sent this text, this couple. I didn't really know where they were living at this time. And I was like, hey, our family might be moving to Pacific Grove to do a church plant. Like, I know it's a shot in the dark, but you free Sunday? And they're like, you know, we had a backpacking trip scheduled, uh, but we'll cancel it. We're living in Nevada. We'll drive down. Okay. Yeah. Committal, but like, that's a pretty significant deal. Like, some random dude texts you and's like, hey, you want to come? They came through Sunday. They discerned. They prayed. By Sunday afternoon, Matt and Trish Kroll had decided to relocate their life to doing this church plant. 
right? Now Trish is leading kids ministry and Matt's leading youth. At that moment, they were willing to relocate their life, discerning for four hours and a long car ride to relocate their life to come here. There was another family up in Washington, a family of five. He was a plumber. They decided, you know what? We're going to follow you down here too. And they decided, this family of five, to live in this tiny little apartment with literally sleeping on top of each other to be a part of God's work in this place. That's before we even started the church plant. We showed up. You know, we had that little ragtag group of people that showed up that half weren't even invited, you know, that ended up a part of the church plan. And we had about 50 folks that were in this body that were willing to set aside their preferences and see God do a new thing. No number of stories stand out. I remember uh, one Sunday, Greg Young had been doing the soundboard. He told me, he said, you know, I've kind of been doing this for about 10 years. It'd be really lovely if I could worship one Sunday with my wife. And what happened to me in that moment is I realized that every person who came to this church wasn't just like another butt in the seat, but it was a way to ease the burden, to provide rest for the weary. I remember one Sunday I asked, you know, as people were starting to come, I said, you know, are there a few guys here? Because there are a lot of stuff that accumulated over the years. And I just said, you know, are there a couple guys here that can carry some stuff? I made an announcement on a Sunday, and these guys came up and helped. And these women afterwards came up, and they were crying. And I was like, oh, man, who did I, you know, make angry this time? And they said to me, you know how long it has been since we could make an announcement like that and get help? providing rest for the weary. God continued to provide people so that those who were here could rest and could worship. Now, that year kept going. Uh, I remember, you know, there's so many stories. One story that does stand out is we decided to do our launch on Easter. This was like our public launch, right, where we actually said, hey, we're starting. And I remember elders literally in the room crying as they watched this room fill up. And one of the elders said something like, you know, it hasn't been this full in a long time except for a funeral. God was bringing life into the desert. Now, year two, things started moving. It was exciting. People were coming, and it was like every time a need arose, Someone in the church would show up and be like, yeah, I can do that. I mean, seriously. It was like comical at some point. Oh, you need someone to do this? Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I have experience with that. We literally didn't do any, like, we we wouldn't search for staff. They would just show up at our door. Worship, youth, women's ministry. One day, Aaron Maddox showed up. And even just now, as I I was thinking about our staff team today, I was just like, man, we didn't search for any of these people. These are people that came here to worship God, 
to be a part of our community. And in the process, they said, you know what? Oh, and, and I'm going to lay down my life to serve here. Not as a full-time minister. They're like almost all bivocational. They're almost all doing, no, no, no. But they have a skill that they want to offer to God in this place. And by the end of year two, we had like done something that was pretty incredible through the generosity of this church. We actually got to sustainability, which in church plant world is crazy. And for the first time towards the end of year two, I felt like, wow, I can start to relax. It was lovely for about a month. (laughs) Because then we had a global pandemic. Which reminds me of a story. Uh, A few years ago in Washington, I went on a hike with a friend, Josh, and a friend named Gus. Josh and I had been training. We had been doing a lot of, like, uh, running in the mountains. Like, that's just what we did. We just trained at Mount Rainier in the mountains. We ran. So, this hike was, like, 33 miles and a little over 24 hours, and we were thinking, not a big deal. Gus, on the other hand, hadn't done much prep. So we started this hike, and Gus was going at a pace that was a little brisk, I thought, for him. And I checked in. I was like, are you sure, Gus? Are you sure you're not going too fast? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I looked at Josh, and I was like, this is going to be bad. (laughs) And at mile 18, as we were going up Crag Mountain, and Gus was literally walking like this. You know, when your legs have stopped, you're like, well, I guess I'll use my arms to move my legs up Crag Mountain. (laughs) And all Gus wanted to do was go back to his car, rest in what was comfortable and familiar. And the truth is, you know, about a couple weeks into the pandemic, I felt exactly like Gus. All I wanted was the comfortable and the familiar of what I had known three weeks before. And I think we were all kind of wondering, what's going to happen? Are we going to make it through this? You know, like Gus was like, how am I going to make it home? I think we were wondering, are we going to do this? I remember thinking to myself like, hey, we did this church plan. I don't think I can do it again. Because the thing is, when problems get big, often God gets really small. But even here, in the pandemic, God provided in the most beautiful and amazing ways. If you were here during that process, right, we shifted everything outside to the wind tunnel between these two buildings. We formed this core of people that just wanted to worship Jesus. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't particularly fun. It was freezing. Kids ministry was bring your own Legos and let them play. And I think week after week, being in the cold and the wind, we we were reminded The church isn't about screens, it's not about pews, it's not about comfort, it's not about programs, it is about worshiping Jesus. And the thing is, we can worship Jesus 
whether we're full of joy or we are suffering. We can worship Jesus whether we are comfortable or uncomfortable. All of us, whether we're in a wind tunnel or a comfy, really hard wooden pew, we can fall on our knees and worship Him. And I think being in the wind tunnel behind the building reminded us of this. I remember Heather, who's standing here, who's leading worship earlier, said to me, you know, I've been in a lot of big churches with lots of, you know, all the shebang. They got all the tech, all the stuff. She said, I don't know if I have seen people worship like I've seen people worship in this uncomfortable wind tunnel because you know they're not here to be entertained. There's this story this person sent me uh, mid-pandemic who showed up, you know, in this uncomfortable spot between the buildings. They wrote this. The first service we attended was outside in the cold between the buildings. Accurate. We slowly met more people every Sunday. I couldn't believe how welcoming everyone was being during a pandemic. Everywhere else we went, we saw fear and anxiety. Here we saw joy and excitement, right? As we worshiped, they actually saw, right, the joy and excitement of Jesus. Were there things to be afraid of? Yes. But that doesn't undermine our worship. You know, we did that for a bit. Last June, we came back in here, right? And then we had to rebuild everything, (laughs) kids ministry, all the welcome, you know, everything had to get rebuilt. It was exhausting. But God's timely provision continued. There's this Sunday, uh, Cliff, he was on bass this morning, but usually he's on drums. He was going to have shoulder surgery, and we were like, what are we going to do? Like, Cliff is an epic drummer, and Rachel can, she can do it, but she's like, was not looking forward to having to do that every week to fill in. And so I, after service, just was going around saying hello to people, and I said hello to this guy named Cam, and Cam's like, I was like, yeah, by the way, can you drum? Sure, I can drum. Let me introduce you. (laughs) We needed a drummer that Sunday. Cliff's surgery was the next day. Cam shows up. He's like, yeah, I can drum. And he was drumming today. God continually provides. I was trying to like figure out a way to capture what that feels like. So I was asking God before this, like, give me a picture of what this feels like. Right, so you come here and you try to do a church plant, right, and as the, like, founding senior, whatever you want to call me, pastor, right, it just feels like you have this burden. Like, imagine this, like, I was trying to think of like, it's like a tectonic shelf or, I don't know, someone probably has better geological language, but like big rock uh, that extends out. And I just felt like early on, like, man, I have this huge weight on my shoulders. And over the last five years, what I've watched is these people come under the weight with me and stand up. And after five years, I now look down and it's this long line 
of people on both sides who have said, you know what? God has invited us into this place. Yeah, God has given us a burden for this place. We're with you. And it's this beautiful picture to me of God's provision for me, but also for us. And I think what it looks like for us to be in solidarity as we carry the weight of God's ministry and mission in this context. That this is not something we do alone. This is not about someone standing up here and teaching, right? This is about all of us offering who God has made us to carry the burden of God's ministry in this local context. And over five years, God has provided this long line of people who are willing to set aside their preferences to see God glorified in this place. God has provided But I also want to share about how he has transformed. Now, I thought about how to do this. So, what stories of transformation do you tell? Right? Because we've had people come to know Jesus for the first time, and it's been beautiful. We've had people recommit their lives, and it's been awesome. We have seen a community, right? The larger community through various nonprofits, through all the ways we've served, impacted. It has been really cool, and literally, I have so many stories I could share. But as I thought about it and prayed about it, I just felt like, you know, the truth is, a lot of us have been in church. A lot of us have grown up in church. And a lot of us, I think, have stopped growing at some point in our Christian lives. You know, we start kind of going through the motions, and we wonder, will I keep changing? Is there more for me? So I wanted to invite up three people that I have seen grown and transformed into deeper freedom and healed and like just God has done cool stuff in them because I think we all need a vision for how God can continue to show up, not just when we first give our lives to Jesus, but maybe 10 years down the road when we wonder, is this all there is? So I want to invite up Heather and Kathy and Kevin. Uh, if you guys want to come up, I've got some stools for you, and we'll tell some stories. Give them a round of applause. Where are you guys going to sit? I don't know. We're figuring it out. Yeah, so I figure... Figured, depending on how you set, would sort of set the stage of how, uh, what order we went in. So, you got the hot seat. Uh, Good morning, Wellspring. It's so good to be here today. I can't, it's just an amazing day. Um, When Tony asked me to share, it was uh, challenging for me to limit um, just to four years that I've been here. Um... I have prompts. I hope that's okay. It's totally fine. Um, Having named Jesus as my Lord in early years, the long, slow work of God has been present throughout my life. Sometimes there's been suddenlies. Man, do I look forward to those. (laughs) But most of the time, it's just long and very slow. And it's hard to recognize the process of change 
That said, I know the work of God is both individual and within relationships. Individual work is needed, and we are responsible for that, as well as how we are connected or choose to join community. There's a reciprocity that is needed. One impacts the other in complex ways. We allow the community to speak into our lives as well as holding our individual voice to discern and speak into the community as needed. Today I speak of religious weights that get placed on our shoulders often without our being aware of it. They are both placed on us and we assume them little by little, layer by layer. Slowly and subtly they come. Eventually these weights cause us to stagger and stumble underneath their weight. In Matthew 23, Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day that actually enjoyed seeing others stagger under a load of rules without lifting a finger to help. Similarly, the load of rules I carried regarding being a Christian woman impacted my ability to walk freely in Christ. But before I get into the symptoms that I carried and what that looked like, I want to share a story about what walking freely looked like here in Wellspring. Years ago, I had a clinical supervisor whose mission statement was changing the world one relationship at a time. Her core beliefs regarding relationships, the first one was, all relationships begin with feeling safe. If you don't feel safe, you can't bring your true self to any relationship. So about five months after I was attending Wellspring, a group of friends who had known me in the Central Valley, where we came from, came over, and they saw me just completely relaxed, chatting it up, introducing myself to people, welcoming others. And they mentioned, wow, you're really different there. And man, I went into, okay, hmm, I really am. Some self-reflection, what's changed? Now, to be clear, I want to say that, well, many systems, there are a variety and varying degrees of safety. And that's an entirely different conversation in itself. Thankfully, at work, I could have safe people that I could be myself with. But at Wellspring, they saw me completely differently. So what were the symptoms of this burden that I was carrying? The first was hesitancy. I acted tentative, unsure, and I was sometimes kind of slow to respond. The second was self-doubt. Oh my goodness, that would fill me. After I spoke or shared or acted in a way, even when I knew it was appropriate, the story I told myself, the questions that flooded me came like this in internal messages. You should have said that differently or you could have said that better, more clearly, concisely. Who are you to speak anyway? In women's gatherings, it was present. And those messages were mainly about my understanding of myself, 
But when it came to speaking with men, it showed up in a big, big way. This weight was based on verbal power combined with knowledge and skill that presented itself in theological teachings. These teachings I'd received as a child throughout adulthood. They misrepresented and distorted what being a woman who followed Jesus really looked like and how to function. God's word was added to by rules that God does not require. Theological words were used like leader, head, head, authority. Silence in the church were used in conjunction with an Americanized cultural bias to hinder or stop me from using the gifts God had given me to bless others. This weight was partially lifted during seminary as I studied those reference passages, but the impact of those teachings was far-reaching. In my life, it set up wrong expectations. In my marriage, my family roles, division of labor, and how I parented. The third symptom showed up while speaking to men. It showed up as a lack of confidence. No one was fully persuaded that I was confident and knew what I was talking about. It undermined both what I said and how it was received. At the time, I was leading a uh, Zoom group because it was during COVID, right? And uh, it, I did both men and women in what I called listening practice. It was a time of structured support to slow down, still ourselves, and listen to the ways God speaks to each person, and then discern together what each person was hearing and discerning from the Spirit. It was a marvelous time, just amazing, just totally amazing. However, I sensed the internal difference I held with each group. It was different. In the women's group, I just share openly about this spiritual formation practice I had embraced years ago. But with men, I was less certain. So what, what really changed, right? What changed? Well, for one thing, I experienced a felt sense of safety within church community. Having been seen and heard relationally, I feel valued for who I am and what I bring. And then there was this illumination from the spirit and recognition that in order for churches to be healthy, the voice of both genders is needed. If you are asked to speak, everyone actually wants to hear you. <laughs> and you use your voice humbly and confidently. Men and women need it. The burden of religious weight was lifted off. And then I had to work it out, leading both men and women. As a daughter of the king, the religious baggage was removed. I can be the spiritual leader God wants me to be without hindrances due to gender. I can walk. I can walk freely. 
I can walk freely and expansively. And my prayer is exactly the same for you. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians. Dear brother and sisters, I cannot tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide, open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. So my story is going to be a little bit different, which is cool. We have the diversity up here of different stories and different folks. Um, this story is very much about me as well, though, and the work that God has done in me. And this is his glory story. Um, a, little about, a little bit about me. I love to watch shows about transformation that show the before and after. Fixer Upper, Property Brothers, even stories about people's weight loss or fitness journeys. I'm down for them all. I love them. <laughs> um, my life before was like a 60-some-year-old house on, on Fixer Upper, sagging up a bit here and there, held together by old paint. In short, I was a mess. I had a relationship with God. I knew at some level the truth of who God is and how he feels about me and his love for me. But I could only let that sink in so far. While I looked okay from the outside, I was a respected husband, father, son, leader, employee. I was really a fragile shell covering a gaping, deep, invisible wound, a wound that was sucking the life out of me, the identity, the purpose, and joy out of me, literally was eating me alive. Let me take you back to my home that I, as I grew up. It looked good on the outside. It was clean, tidy, organized. We went to church on Sundays. But there were secrets, lots of them, secrets that couldn't be shared. By my mid-20s and 30s, the family dysfunctions exploded, and the secrets, shock of all shocks, began leaking out. My older brother married an emotionally abusive woman. They adopted two children, loved one, and rejected the other. My parents and I tried to show additional love and attention to the one who was rejected, but in doing so, we incurred the wrath of my sister-in-law, which was doled out in caustic tirades to everyone around her, including the kids. When I finally stood up to her and told her enough was enough, we never saw my niece alive again. A few months later, on Father's Day in 1993, my niece, only 11 years old, trashed her room and ran away from home to escape the abuse. She fell off a steep train trestle, hit her head, and was found the next day. After six weeks in a coma on life support, she died. Seeking someone else to bear the weight of their loss and her death, her parents blamed me and went to the police launching an official investigation. 
This was the background music playing through our engagement for Janet and me and our wedding day. Would I be charged for something I didn't do? Would our wedding even happen? I defended myself the best I could, but was left with a gaping wound in me that ate myself, ate at my self-perception, my confidence, my identity, and me. I was thankful, and still am, that Janet stood by me. I was able to forgive my brother and sister-in-law to move on and function, but there was a huge part of me stuck back in 1993, wounded and bleeding, invisible. There was a part of me never fully present, never fully engaged, but I kept moving forward one day after another in my life. This was my secret playing out over and over again in the background of my life. Fast forward almost 30 years, we retired, moved here, and came to Wellspring. Best decision we ever made of following God. I went back to work part-time. We started a major remodel, and in one day, COVID lockdown, and a puppy, and our two adult daughters all showed up on our doorstep. <laughs> Shortly after that, Janet's mom passed away, and I took over the lead to empty and ready her house for sale and execute her will. Under the pressure from all of this, the cracks grew and grew, and the fragile shell that people finally saw collapsed in on me. And I knew I needed help. Help to get healthy, help to get whole, help to be able to stand up, and help to be able to move forward. I reached out to Tony and to a men's recovery group. God used both of those, one for healing, and one for a Christ-focused way forward. God used Tony to ask a lot of deep questions, helping me bring, to the, bring places of deep woundedness to the surface that hadn't seen the light of day in 30-plus years. Years of abuse, of pain, of feeling less than, of feeling wounded, of feeling invisible. Processing my timeline with Tony was powerful. It helped me identify periods filled with physical abuse, emotional abandonment, and understand how that had impacted me today and some of the unhealthy coping strategies I'd adopted to try and deal with it. Processing through the myriad of emotions that made up my wedding day, including not just joy and excitement, which is what it should be, but fear and worry, embarrassment that the police were going to show up as uninvited guests. Um, and may come to arrest me for something I did not do was a deeply powerful and freeing experience. I needed closure. I craved closure. It finally freed me to acknowledge and experience and express those emotions I felt all those years ago, feeling alone, scared, on edge, beaten up one more time. Where was God through all those years growing up? Where was he in our wedding day? And the answer was loud and clear. He was right there with me through it all. He saw, he heard, he experienced, he wept with me. He was with me in my fear, in my feeling invisible. As a small child dumped in a garbage can, the lid slammed down and left on the curb by my brother. And 33 years later, falsely accused, again, by my brother. 
God was there. Simply knowing that and experiencing that gave me what I needed. I don't need to have that conversation with my brother anymore to get closure because I had that conversation with God. And he gave me all the closure I need this side of heaven. God also provided a group of men around me to support me, affirm me, encourage me in my walk as a man of God. I came to understand and to see and to accept and to internalize God's truths, the truth of who he is, of how he feels about me, and his unconditional love for me, no matter what. In this group, my giftings have been affirmed, and God is using even my brokenness to help bring community and hope and encouragement to others. A couple of favorite transformational scriptures for me during this journey have been uh, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God wins victory after victory and is always with you. He celebrates and sings because of you, and he will refresh your life with his love. Another one is Psalm 139.17-19. through 19. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Even in my brokenness, I know I am accepted, loved, and cherished by God. While this did not always happen with my, my earthly parents, it always happens with my heavenly dad. I am transformed because I know that regardless of what I have done or whatever others have done to me, God loves me because I am his. He is powerfully committed to me, and his powerful love has changed my story. He sacrificed his everything, his son, so that we could be in fellowship. I know that he is for me. I know that he has plans and purposes for me. He could do it all without me, but it brings him more delight, more joy, more enjoyment for us to do it together. God's powerful love accomplished for me what I could not do on my own. He replaced shallowness with depth, woundedness with wholeness, insecurity with confidence, and tyranny with freedom. To God be the glory. That was a really powerful testimony. Thank you. Um, I grew up in church, too. Uh, I remember my mom serving, you know, faithfully, worship team, kitchen. I mean, we were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, rehearsal Thursday night, like for as long as I can remember. I remember I grew up on a, at a church Monterey Assembly. We met at the building on Prescott and Lane, if you're if you're familiar with the area, and I would fall asleep as a little girl, and I would sometimes roll down because <laughs> I'd fallen asleep. Thank goodness we had carpeting, you know, through it, so I'd roll and like hit the bottom and oh, you know. Um, but I, 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 I always grew up with a strong sense of serving the body. Um, at the same time, I grew up watching my mom being severely undervalued. Uh, she was an only, she was a single mother of an only child. Um, she didn't fit in with all the couples stuff, right? 
church has not always been kind to single people, let alone single mothers. Um, she didn't fit in with the singles group because the singles group, you know, you couldn't bring your kids with you, so she didn't fit in there. And, and though she worked very hard for the body, leadership never valued her. Um, she also, as some of you know, when she shared her testimony, she had suicidal depression while I was growing up. So she could have really used some help um, and didn't get it. But somehow, I managed to still stay faithful to church um, until my early 20s. Um, I decided that I had enough of not being valued and just stopped going. And I got into the world and I sought value from everyone else started singing more. You know, I didn't really sing until my early 20s, believe it or not. I sang a little bit, but not much. So I sought value. I sought love, uh, romantic love, friend love, every kind of value outside of the church because I didn't get it there. Um, and I know that some of you probably share that story. Um, this is my transformation story. The world didn't have it either. Oh, how um, devastating to think you've got the answer outside of church because church was so damaging, and then you go out there and it's even worse, right? It's even worse. Um, at first it's okay, and then you realize it's not. And so slowly, uh, I went through, you know, the buzzword of today is deconstruction, but I did go through a deconstruction, but deconstruction without reconstruction is very dangerous. So I had the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit just slowly began to call me. So I began the journey of really forsaking the affirmation and requiring the affirmation of people and starting to really plug into the Holy Spirit and seeking him. I went through a lot. I mean, God, I can't tell you how much God provided people, random people. I was a smoker for 23 years. I smoked until 2012, believe it or not. Um, he healed me of that, but he brought me Christian smokers at work, <laughs> right? Like, I'd be sitting there smoking a cigarette, and, she, and one friend in particular was a military wife. I love our military families, and she was a smoker from Tennessee, and we would sit there and just smoke and talk about Jesus. And it was, it was wonderful. It, it, it brought me back, like, right? You know, it started making me think I'm still not going to church at the time. And then my mom and I decided to move to Texas. And, and I was ready. I was ready to go back to church and give people a shot. Like, okay, ready to plug in. In Texas, everything's bigger, right? So I get to this giant church. I've been singing karaoke for 10 years. You know, I'm ready. I'm ready to lead worship, right? <laughs> From karaoke to leading worship, you know, it's, it's glorious. Uh, but uh, they don't knock karaoke. Karaoke was great. But um, anywho, uh, we, get to, <laughs> we get to Texas. I plug into a church, and I start going, and almost immediately the same stuff starts happening. I'm undervalued, I'm serving, and the whole time, eight years I go to this church, I have the Holy Spirit training me, Heather, I am your source. Do not 
man does not promote from the left or right. I promote. He would train me and bring me up and tell, like, almost audible voices sometimes, and I'd be despondent. They wouldn't let me lead worship. They wouldn't let me lead worship. I mean, I could get put on the back line, you know, but they were all about optics, and I look very different from most people, and they didn't want me on the front line. It didn't matter if I was anointed. It didn't matter. So I just got this more and more and more emotional abuse and just, but God wouldn't let me leave. And I don't know why, right? At the time, I'm like, Lord Jesus, please just let me go. And he's like, no, you're, I'm not done with this work. So he used that time to heal my, to begin to heal my perception of the body of Christ. Because as I plugged into the Holy Spirit, as I plugged into Jesus for my affirmation, for my source, for my confidence, my expectations, my unrealistic expectations on people began to wane. And I realized that people are just people doing the same thing I'm doing. Uh, When we came back in 2015, I had in my heart, I wanted to become part of a body where I would be an example to people. I wanted to be an example to people that they could worship God and serve God no matter where they were in the congregation, um, that dedication and devotion to the body would be rewarded, that um, relationship was important. I had such a lack of relationship in Texas for eight years. Honestly, it's like a dream. It's like I wasn't even there for eight years. It's so weird. So we started going to another church locally. I was serving a little bit there, but I wasn't being fulfilled. My, my, my giftings weren't being used. And, and while it was okay for a time, I just, my heart really wanted to be serving in a way that God created me to serve and to be valued for a single woman, to be valued as a worship leader, to be val- just valued. Relationships. I mean, I couldn't plug into relationships. It's so weird how churches can be. So it's bizarre. So one Sunday I got asked by Cliff if I could come and lead worship as a guest worship leader because somebody couldn't show up or something. And so I came and I was, it was probably a B, might have been a B, you never know. Um, And I I showed up and, and I led worship and I was like, these people are going to look at me like I'm an alien because I do not sing like a Presbyterian right? Like, I'm spirit-filled, I'm charismatic, you know, like, I don't know what's going on, but the presence of God was so heavy here, and I just thought, wow, this is really beautiful. I can't wait to visit again. Well, that was Sunday. Wednesday, everything shut down for COVID. So, (laughs) I guess worship led, and then COVID hit, and nobody came to church, and then we started the whole journey here. Um, And once we started coming back uh, in person, I began to, I already knew Cliff and Ratch and Jill and, you know, a bunch of people. So we had a relationship. Amy was one of my best friends. She's been one of my best friends for years. So such a blessing. Um, and uh, once we started meeting in person, I just fell in love with you. I mean, something about the open community here that, pursued me, the leadership that showed me value. You are valuable here. You're valuable to God and our leadership and our staff and every person that I see here 
They value you. They see you. So if you're here today and you've never been here before, just be encouraged because Jesus loves you and people value you here. And, and that, that is my, that's my transformation story with Wellspring. I, I learned to love the body of Christ here. And that is really important to Jesus. Thank you, guys. If you want to, you want you can stay up here. I think we're gonna have the the worship team. If you guys want to come up, thank you, Kathy and Kevin, and I guess the the thread I want to connect uh, through these stories. Got a little hug back there. totally left out of that. I felt like a little magical moment. You guys saw it. They saw it. Um, This is often in church life, uh, especially if you've been on the journey a little bit. You have to let Jesus in, into what's going on in your mind, in your heart. And as he does that, he brings healing. And then as he brings that healing, actually your kingdom impact increases. I've watched with Kathy and Heather and Kevin as they've been on this journey of transformation, the number of people that they are impacting for the kingdom has gone up exponentially. As Heather has allowed herself to be loved and accepted, her impact as a worship leader has gone up. As Kathy has walked into her leadership, allowed some of those weights to be taken off, her impact with men and women has gone up. Same with Kevin. I'm going to go back to uh, the bulldozer analogy because I think it's apt. God is sort of standing next to all of our lives in a bulldozer, reaching out his hands and saying, hey, will you give me the keys to your life? It's not just about this community, it is also about as individuals. Are we willing to let go? Because when we let God in, not only do we see his provision, but we experience his transformation, which then leads to impacts in his kingdom that extend beyond ourselves. That's what we want to do here. We want to be a people that let God in, that trust him. And as we do, we experience his provision and transformation. And then other people look at us and be like, what is going on in that person's life? Why is Kathy so much different? And she can turn around and say, let me tell you a story of what God has done. We're going to turn to worship because in the end, that's the only appropriate response, right? to how God has moved in this place, how he has moved in individual lives. I just want to invite us to stand as we enter into worship. God, in this moment, we just 
However we came in this room, whether we came in this morning discouraged, whether we came in this morning joyful, tired, or energetic, God, we want to just raise a hallelujah, which means praise be to Yahweh, praise be to God. And we're going to raise a hallelujah, whether it's a good day or a bad day, whether it's been a rough year or whether it's been the best year of our life. And Jesus, we say to you, thank you. Thank you for what you've done in this body. Thank you for what you will do in this body. God, this church was never about any of us. It's always been about you. And God, in this moment, we set aside our preferences. And we say, God, work in us. Work in our hearts that we might be transformed so that we can be living billboards of your presence wherever we go, to work, to home, on the block, in the coffee shop, wherever we go. May we be living billboards of your glory and your presence. We raise a hallelujah saying, God, to you be the glory. Thank you, Lord. I raise a hallelujah.